seeing you here Rachel Donna is as well Donna's out there getting better shout out Dan good to have you here love the stuff that I've been seeing the AI testing channel from you good stuff it's cool to cool to see what we're doing there and good to have you here we're now officially streaming live on YouTube stuff's going well all right sometimes we like wait around and say hey people like we'll give people a minute but I'm just feeling like getting into it so why don't we just do that um, great to have you all here today. Special special announcement before we get into it that uh, this episode will be the final episode uh, of Re- Revenue Vitals Live as we know it today. Um, so moving forward, we're going to keep the same time slot. So we'll still have an event at 12 p.m. on Tuesdays, 12 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. However, um, it will only be for paid Vault subscribers. And so what I found is that uh, a lot of people, a lot of the best stuff that we're doing here is really like what I would call one-on-one coaching, or it's actually group coaching, right? There's a bunch of people in here. They come with a certain business situation that they're trying to solve. Um, and then we all like, will work together on coaching and a lot of other people will be able to observe and learn. And so that's the plan for the sessions moving forward. It'll be a group coaching call for paid vault subscribers only. If you are not a paid vault subscriber and you're interested in coming to the end events, feel free. Kaylee will drop a link and you can explore it. There's a there's a free option as well, so you can get a sense of what it is and then decide whether or not you'd like to attend. Additionally, I haven't decided on this, but my gut is telling me that, that we will not be recording those events, so it'll give people a ton of confidence to be able to really come with the, their exact challenges and we'll be able to go a lot more in detail given that it won't be released publicly. So I'm looking forward to that. I continue to do tons of events. Part of the driver of, of changing the style of this event is that I I do like six events a week now for third parties. So I'm doing things with communities and different tech vendors and uh, speaking at a lot of conferences and things like that. So we have plenty of different ways that you can attend public events and see content speaking from me. So stay tuned. I'll do a better job promoting the, the public free events that I'll be doing. Um, and then if you're looking for more in-depth coaching type of stuff, we can uh, talk about how that works in the vault. So with that, I think we would just get into the AMA. I just came off another event. I did an event with a company called Proposify. It was all, we did some things about BDRs going into sales or marketing. How should that work? Talked a lot about sales velocity. So maybe some of those topics will resurface again to, uh, during this event. But for now, let's just let the audience drive what we want to work on. Brilliant. Yeah. If anybody has a question, feel free to drop it in the chat. As always, if you want to come on live, just note live so that I can bring you on. Otherwise, I'm happy to ask questions anonymously on your behalf. So feel free to shoot them over. We'll get started with a couple of questions we've still got in the backlog. Um, We've got a couple that are around um, interviewing or professional development talk tracks, which I feel like we haven't covered in a couple beats. So let's start there. Um, what are the two or three things that a director of demand gen should or could look for when interviewing for their next opportunity? This person is interviewing for two very different companies and they're trying to really prioritize what, what they can predict will be a good fit or a good experience. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different dynamics about it really uh, for you understanding what's most important to you, 
right? So I think that's where we need to start. Some people will prioritize stability or base salary or on target earnings or whether they get a bonus or whether they get equity or whether they have worked with the previous CMO or marketing leader before or how they measure marketing or does their CEO post on LinkedIn or are they passionate about the product or the problem that the company's solving? There are just so many different drivers individually for you to understand what is most important to me. What I recommend is literally make a list, try and prioritize and sort the list of what is the most important thing to me against what is the least important thing to me. And then as you debate, whether it's two opportunities or you don't have any offers and you're going out and looking for an opportunity, you can use that as a lens that you look at about, is this a company a good fit for me and have it be a little bit more objective than just like a feeling or guessing. It gives you a process to work through. If we think about like just on the marketing performance side, like let's go in that direction and exclude comp and other things for a minute. Um, Some of the things that I'd be looking for in a company, if I was joining as a director level person, I'd really be looking, does the executive team post on social? That's like almost a requirement for me. If they, if executives don't do it, we're going to get, we're going to struggle to have other people in the company do it or actually implement that strategy. If they're doing it, it means executives buy into it. It means they figured out some way to, to measure it effectively and that the company and organization overall believes in it. I'd be talking and getting really clear with the CMO about what are the, what are the goals? What are the KPIs that I'm trying to drive? If I'm a director of demand gen, they tell me I'm supposed to drive MQLs. I'm going to say, I'm going to go find another opportunity. I've, I've run the MQL hamster wheel enough times, and it's just not an effective strategy. Um, I'd be looking at how, like, whether or not they have a how did you hear about us field on their forum. I think that's a huge indicator of does that company understand how to, how to better and effectively measure how demand is being created, which is a key component of doing effective marketing today. I think those are a couple. And then like there's some element of do you believe in the product, right? I think this actually goes understated a little bit. Um, But like being being a marketer that truly believes in the product doesn't mean that it has to be a marketing product. I've marketed medical devices before that I truly believed in. Um, So it, it doesn't have to be something that's necessarily so parallel to your profession. It's just do you are you passionate about the problem or the outcome that the product is driving? Um, I think that is a underrated part of, of choosing a job that you're effective in as well. Yeah. I was just thinking back through my last round of interviews before I decided to come here and I actually did something pretty similar to what you're explaining. I, um, have a tendency to romanticize marketing I've been told. Um, and so I think that's important to be able to segment out like what, like what gets you passionate, what gets your heart rate up, et cetera, about a job versus taking a step back and just looking like, yes, no, does this actually check my boxes? So I just put together a simple Google sheet that was like company attributes with the variables on the, you know, initial column of variables I was hoping to find or hoping to not find Um, things very similar to what you said that are baseline. Like, is this remote? Is it early stage? Is it profitable? Do they have product market fit? Um, And then other things that are a little bit harder or um, more qualitative that you have to pick up you know, during the interview process, like, do they align philosophically with my approach to demand gen? Yes or no. The difference that I think I did versus you, you're saying kind of rank them or rate them. I forced myself into a yes, no, or unsure checkbox so that it was like not up for me to rank them. Um, but instead had to be a little bit more, you know, black or white as to like, yes or no, or just straight up. I haven't asked this in the interview process yet. Um, so that I could look a little bit more objectively at what I was really considering what I actually wanted 
et cetera. But yeah, I think it's a really good exercise to do. And then at the end, you know, you can color code them and you'll end up hopefully with a bunch of green boxes that align with what you're going for. Um, it helps you, you know, take a step back, be a little bit more removed from the day to day of what you're feeling or what you're hearing from one interview to the other. Yeah. And to, and to your point, I think there's actually like, there's company attributes and there might be another column, which is like deal breakers, right? Deal breaker yeah. company doesn't align with my strategy. Com- like, so having a set of deal breakers, like if this is present or not present, depending on the attribute, then I'm out. And being able to have that, whether that's in a job or relationship, there's so many different ways that you could use this, but it's basically having like setting a standard and a bar for yourself about the things that you're not going to tolerate or not going to be a part of. So I think having a deal breaker list is a good strategy too. I think so. Yeah. And I think like a good exercise to understand and identify some of these variables that are unique to you or unique to whoever is like doing a job search or considering a new role is to take a good, like reflective look back through each of your previous roles, list out a couple of things that you loved about that role. And a couple of things that would go under your non-negotiables of like, will not tolerate. And just add that to your list of variables as you move through the process. That's a good, that's a good little start off. Let's, let's do the, another one around professional development too. It's uh, this person says they're a general, pretty broad marketing strategist today. Uh, what are some steps that they can take to become an, a better revenue strategist specifically? So right now they are, um, it says not a T-shaped marketer, um, but also don't have any goals or KPIs aligned to revenue. What can they do internally to move that um, alignment and better position themselves for a role that aligns to a revenue goal? Um, it's weird because if you asked me, I would consider myself a general marketing or business strategist as well. I think the key thing to the key distinction here is just because you have broad experience doesn't mean that you can't go deep in a bunch of elements. Um, and so it's basically being able to flex between strategy and tactics and understand both of them. So you want to know how you like develop specialist skills, you go out and do stuff. You go out and figure out how to set up HubSpot, integrate it with Salesforce, put together automation, send emails and look at open rates and make decisions. You actually go out and build Facebook campaigns and see what the targeting capabilities are. And you go on LinkedIn and you try different campaign strategies. You post content for yourself. You start an e-commerce store and try and sell stuff using Instagram ads. Uh, you go and talk to customers and try and put together revamped or enhanced positioning based on the things that you learn. You go to events and you run surveys for customers to learn. Like you, it's just about going out and doing the things, right? So I think that there are opportunities to go and quote, like go and do some of that stuff in your current role. How can you go out and go and try new things and, and learn? And then there's things that you're not going to get in your current role that you need to solve. Maybe you have to go and take a finance class. Maybe you have to go and uh, take a quote unquote, like uh, performance marketing class from some company, right? Like there's, there's things that you might not get inside of your current role, given the constraints of your company. And you have to decide, can I get this in my current role? Is it necessary? And can I not get it? How am I going to fill those, fill those gaps? Um, but the key thing is like, like there, it's really easy to talk about strategy, really easy to talk about strategy, but really hard to execute. And it's actually really hard to develop a solid strategy if you don't execute. I was going to say, I hope you tie that together. Cause I think that there are strategists that, you know, sit in a room, attend meetings for the majority of their day, never pull a lever, push a button, build a program and very quickly become 
out of touch or irrelevant with the feedback that they're giving. Like some of the best operators are people that are executing, therefore driving the strategy and closing that loop between the two. So revenue strategist, I understand is maybe what you're going for, but I think, yeah, the best path to get there is to find ways to pull the levers yourself. And I think that you'd be surprised to find how much opportunity there probably is within your existing organization or your existing role. Um, that's just completely untapped right now. Like there's always so many things that marketers can be doing, which means there's probably a good bulk of programs or strategy that you can get in and deliver on that nobody has the ownership or the bandwidth over today. So like start there. Uh, we've got a question in the chat too, Chris, I'll ask on their behalf. Um, this person says I'm in between CMOs and do not have access to clients or a true buyer's journey map. Uh, I'm on the event side. And because of these elements, I struggle to speak directly to where my ICP is, where I meet them. Do you have any tips for product positioning without these types of tools in my arsenal? Yeah, I just dropped a, I just dropped a question in the chat to Nikki on this one because I'm, I'm like trying to understand why you don't have access to customers when you're between CMOs. Um, new CS team that is super protective. Yeah, I've been there before. The like account management sales team in my situation, but same deal. So you're on the event side. If you are going to events, then you should have access to a lot of customers. So I would consider using your. Um, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> when you're, yeah, she just answered in the chat. When you're at the events, like when I didn't have access, I would bring an iPad. I would do. I would literally have every person that walked in the booth. I would do surveys. We would give up some like you know, insignificant thing like an iPhone or something like that. And I'd get 200 responses from exact qualified customers that were at our booth about what, where they get information, who they're listening to. I would also follow them at the events and see what sessions they went to, see what people they were talking to. And then I would go and talk to the people of the sessions they were listening to and have say, Hey, your stuff's really interesting. You want to come on our podcast? And then I'd be making relationships with people that my customers trust and so like, yeah, I would use events to get all of the like access to customers that you can given the current situation and customers just for everyone as a reminder, customers means anyone, anyone that could buy from you that you decide whether it's Tam, Sam, relevant market, whatever you decide, but anyone that could buy from you, they don't have to be paying you right now, cost all customers. So that's where I would start in terms of getting things. Yeah, because the output is to actually better understand product positioning. She wants those inputs to informed pro inform her product positioning. Yeah. That's like if those are the constraints, that's what I would do. I'd use events to get customer insights to refine product positioning. In some situations like this before, like going with the sales team to visit current customers and things could be situations, but I know field sales is kind of like not as popular anymore. But finding a way to collaborate with CS or sales to be able to at least have exposure to customers could be another strategy. Yeah. I think in the past two, in the past two, I, while I've definitely worked with CS leaders that don't want marketing, just like walking up in and talking to random, um, customers, because, you know, we don't always have full context around their health score, their experience, et cetera. But some cool things that I've partnered with CS leaders on in the past is setting up um, workshops that happen once a month where a group of the marketing team, maybe like 
10 or 15 people that are on the marketing team join the CS team for a workshop that's once a month where they enable us on who we're calling, what our objective is, what types of questions they prefer we ask, et cetera. We partner ahead of time to like build the list of customers we're going to talk to with a specific outcome that helps the CS team because they never have enough bandwidth either and also helps us. Um, and that's been a cool way to also like overcome the fact that maybe we don't always have the context as marketers that the CS leader wants us to have. So instead, let's like join forces once a month, biweekly, whatever cadence makes sense for your brand and accomplish something that supports their goals, but also supports ours. Here's another thing. It's literally something that I'm doing right now and can attest to the amount of value. Like like maybe partner with your CS team, identify your top 10 customers, and then go and create customer stories from those 10 customers. Go out and do an interview, record it, be able to cut that up into a web page or different things like that, and then use all the language your customers, your happiest customers tell you about the impact that you're making, what metrics you're driving, all that different information to actually inform the exact messaging on the website. That could be a shortcut as well to get over the red tape to frame it as a customer story with the end goal of, you know, you get all the assets from customer stories, great downstream promotion, sales enablement assets. Um, but you also get the insights for how to update product positioning based on real things your happiest customers are telling you. Awesome. Yeah. She said fantastic ideas. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. That was a good question, Nikki. Um, let's shift gears to reporting attribution measurement. We've got a lot of questions that have come in. Um, to be asked anonymously about reporting and attribution. Um, this one says, what KPIs or attainment measures best align with this shift in value mindsets for sellers specifically? Um, can you outline what a sales team org structure might look like when you're adding more of a solution selling approach with pre-post support in addition to strategic selling time? So it looks like he's trying to shift gears to... Um, implement a demand creation and a demand capture model. And he's understanding what, what some of the KPIs or attainment measures might look like from a seller's perspective. Um, sales job is to close deals, <laughs> close deals, maintain a certain win rate of qualified opportunities, hit, you know, better or average sales cycle metrics and ultimately hit quota. Like the, the role of a sales rep does not change in this, in this, uh, environment. It's just how the people are getting to the salesperson for the meetings might change. That's might be a big change in the engine, but I think the sales teams like core responsibilities remain unchanged. I think if you were going to add some things, then like have like, uh, I don't have a ton. Like I, if you, if you had a, like a sort of territory, whether that's ge geographical or a segment or anything like that, having a list of all of the accounts and then being able to say how, like how many, how many ops or how many meetings are we getting inside of these, these accounts? Like you could set up leading metrics, but a lot of companies already measure a sales team on these types of metrics. So, um, I, you know, maybe I'm missing something in the question, Kaylee, so you can help me, but I don't see the much changing on this side. I don't either. I think that he's inspired by just like an innovative approach to, to demand gen and also wants to understand how you might take an innovative approach in tandem to a sales team. Um, I'm just getting like sub messages coming in now and deciphering the story. But um, for instance, he knows that you've mentioned um, sales compensation strategy adjustments that could also be an innovate, innovative approach versus the current like status quo. 
and wants to understand if there are other pillars or topics that you might also consider for a sales organization who's already undergoing, you know, change from marketing teams change. Yeah. I mean, to reiterate on sales compensation, like I, the variable commission plans for sales representatives were created in the nineties or earlier. Um, and we still use generally the same structure to commission sales versus other go-to-market teams like we did 30 years ago. And we've never rethought whether that's the right way to do it. And I think it's just totally skewed based on the impact that an individual sales rep has in a B2B business today versus the amount of impact they had 20 years ago in closing deals. It's just, it's way more of a team sport now. So I don't understand why we would compensate salespeople that way and nobody else. Um, I also think that variable commission plans are that create misalignment between the sales rep and the customer. So, um, I think those are the two main reasons why. And then lastly, be like a lot of companies have a variable commission plan so that when they overhire sales reps and they fail to plan properly, all they have, they hedge their risks. So it's 50, 50. So they only pay a salesperson, their base salary, no commission. Then they fire 10 salespeople and who loses in that equation? The sales reps lose, not the, not the comp, not the company. So, and there's just a, like, I'm sh- companies aren't going to change this right now based on what I say. Right. So companies aren't going to go out and change this broadly. I see like a couple of companies changing this, but I recognize that this is a complex problem that, um, existing companies and changing a big machine, right? You have 50 reps and you're going to change the, the commission plan this drastically. It's just not going to fly. So I understand, and I'm a, well aware of the constraints in companies. I think if you're building from the ground up, having a different stance on go to market team compensation overall, I think would be smart. And I think that like, this isn't necessarily innovative, but if you actually adopt this approach, that your sales team is going to spend way more time helping people that want to buy actually buy versus trying to convince people to buy. So I, it changes the type of sale, right? It's hard to have a consultative sale when the person you're talking to doesn't actually want to buy your stuff, doesn't actually recognize the problem that you solve. And so getting that type of stuff done up front so the customer already knows that allows the seller to be consultative rather than trying to pitch and pitch and close and convince someone to buy. But that's like, that's a very down, you don't change that, that until you're creating a lot of demand. You can't just say, we're going to be a consultative selling model now, um, until you are able to create the pipeline, the meetings that allow you to actually be consultative. We've got, um, a couple more anonymous that came in. So we'll just go on that for a minute. So we've got, um, what demand gen tactics can I use to help move active opportunities through their sales funnel? So I asked for a couple more details and what we know is they have a long sales cycle, 18 months on average. They have sales solution guys for their like team structure on the sales side, sales engineers, and then BDRs that are actually all working the deals. Um, and they're in the cybersecurity industry. And the out, the outcome is shortened sales cycles? Yeah. Um, yeah. Through demand gen. Well, yeah. the way the question is framed, at least. Demand gen tactics to help move active opportunities through the sales funnel faster. Uh, the quote here about the active opportunity is the, is the issue here. The number one way that you reduce sales cycles in any B2B company is you change the intent of the buyer at the time of the first meeting with sales. I'll give you data to illustrate this in 2018. I ran this analysis of the company after for two years, I'd been operating this demand gen model. 
Historically, the trailing 12 months outbound had sales cycles of 212 days and win rates from demo to close of 7%. And buyers that came to the website and asked for a demo had sales cycles of 76 days instead of 212 days. And we won those demos at 35% instead of 7%. And when you look at it that way, it becomes very clear that the same rep is how it's like, it's not the salesperson's talent that's changing this. It's not whether we did an event to close the deal during a trade show. It's the idea that when the buyer started talking to sales, they actually wanted to buy. That's really the difference. So the way that you shorten sales cycles is that you run an effective demand creation, demand capture strategy so that when buyers are talking to sales, they're educated, they understand the problem, they understand the pricing, they've talked to peers inside of communities, they trust your brand, other stakeholders in the company know who you are and what you do. And then you have an effective meeting when the buyer's 85% of the way done buying when they talk to sales for the first time, rather than being 0% of the way done buying because we cold called them when they've never heard of our company before. And so that is, it's like every company makes, not every company, lots of marketing teams and lots of companies make this mistake where they think that the best way to accelerate pipeline is to get someone into a meeting and then do everything they can with marketing to, to get this active pipeline to push it through when the original buyer didn't have a large intent to buy, it's way more effective to change the person that you, the person and the intent level you have the meeting with rather than trying to do things once a person's in pipeline that doesn't want to buy. That's my, I'm like a hundred percent clear on this point. And I just see a lot of, should, should you do pipeline marketing? Sure. Do you want to do an event with a customer, uh, during an event to try and like close, close a big deal? Absolutely. You should do that stuff. But the, the, unlock here is that the actual way to accelerate sales cycles is to educate buyers at scale. Um, I don't want to name names because it was anonymous, but if you have follow-up questions on that, just feel free to shoot me a DM and I'll be happy to come back to it with Chris. Let's get, we've got a YouTube question that's come in too. Let's shift to that real quick. This person's implementing, uh, how did you hear about us? Their director is concerned about form conversions, even though the form is already not well-optimized. Is it better to build a short-term process for SDRs to ask, how did you hear about us or push for small scale form test or something not mentioned by them? Push, push for small scale, small, uh, test. If you have to, I would not, I would not because you're concerned about the form conversion rates when your forms already not optimized would move this to have a BDR ask manually. It creates so much downstream complexity and room for error where the data that you actually collect, you don't collect all the data. It's manually put into Salesforce. It's interpreted by the BDR, not by like automation or software. It's not exactly coming from the customer's mouth. It's what the BDR interpreted. And then whether or not they put it in Salesforce, they probably finish the call. And then eight hours later, they have to end put the data into Salesforce. They forget what the customer said and they just put something in. Like it just creates so much room for error when the real, the real issue is that we need to get people to understand that people that are declaring intent to buy from our company are going to fill out the form, whether there's five or six fields and that there's plenty of technology and tools that can allow us to get those fields down to like two to three, uh, if we want to implement them and actually cared about conversion rates. Um, I would look at the fields on the form that you already have. You said it's not optimized. I would identify which of the fields are totally unnecessary because they could be enriched or they're not the salesperson could ask on the first call or so many other reasons why it's not needed. Um, and then uh, just swap it out for one of them. Like so many companies have a field at the bottom. that's like, like message, you know what I mean? Just like write a message here, the last field in the forum, like take that, swap it out, put, how did you hear about us and get way better data? 
Um, I think that uh, like running a small test, if you had to, plenty of companies do this. Global companies, they test it in Sweden for two months. They collect the data. They see that it has no impact and they get tons of awesome data directly from customers at the time of buying that leads to significant shifts in their overall go-to-market strategy. And then they roll it out worldwide because they see how effective the data is. So if you need to segment it to a geo or some types of forms or things like that, then feel free. I hate, uh, hate's not the right word. I don't want to be so strong here. I really dislike this in marketing. I felt this in when I worked for a company in 2016 to 2018 is that when you're a marketer and you're working for people that don't get it, you spend all this time doing dumb shit to prove some stuff that you shouldn't need to prove. And so it slows down your career. It slows down your progress. It slows down your learning. When in reality, if you were working for me and you're like, hey, we want to implement this on our field and we want to go and test this, I'd be like, okay, go, let's go. And then we don't have to do some tests. We don't have to waste two months. We don't have to debate this on a, on a Revenue Vitals live episode and we just go. And so I think like it's, it's super underrated, especially if you're like quote unquote earlier in your career, like manager, director to work for people that really get it as a marketer, there's so many people out there that don't, and it really slows you down. So like for professional and career growth, like being in a company that does marketing well and gets marketing, I think is it's invaluable. I'll add quickly that there's also so many tests that I have had to do in my own career and others that I chat with often have had to run in their career that you waste all of that time testing and end up, you don't have enough traffic to even test it in the first place. So even if you're doing geo-based, it's not stat sig. Now you're coming back with like really crumbled results and trying to like prove that it's worth it. And, you know, at the end of the day, the person you're reporting to will either be like, yes, this is valid enough for me to consider moving forward or no, it's still not valid. Go test it again. And then you're stuck in this really strange loop. And you've now set the precedence for this manager or whoever you're rolling up to that you can test everything. I think there are also managers that don't really have a firm line in the sand of like, yes, let's execute and run with this or no, I don't like it for X, Y, Z reason. Let's not continue. And you get in this loop of testing everything, learning nothing. And then there's like so much lack of clarity, just like holistically, right? Then you come back one day and you look at your website and it's like 14 things that are chopped together that tells no clear story. And all of a sudden it's now not converting, right? So like, you just don't want to get stuck in that loop either. So if there's an option C for this YouTube question to just implement it, I would say do that. Um, but it seems like maybe that's not the case. So find a way to get it over the finish line. I don't know if I'd recommend a test without better understanding traffic and like how you could actually move it forward to scale. Um, hang on one second. We've got a question. Duke, let me bring you on live and see if you want to riff about event strategy with Chris it. for a second. Sounds good. Thanks, Kaylee. Duke, what's good? Is this your so first Chris, time here? No, I've been on a few times. Awesome. Great to have you back. Thanks, man. So I was just hoping you might be able to share more details about the future where you started off the call of making this for uh, live event for vault members only. Do you see or predict more companies taking this type of approach with events as well? Um, so let me explain sort of like my thinking around it. And then we can talk about how other companies either could do it or probably already do it just in a different way. Um, so first off, uh, I do about five podcasts and live events per week that are not this one. Um, and so, and I get queued up with fireside chats and questions, tons of questions, just like the one that we get here. So it's just like sort of become, I'm looking for a different, 
uh, content stream, right? So like, even if we took this event away, I'll still have five podcasts where I'm talking about generally similar things, where it's just me being a guest on a third party event versus me having my own event. So the second thing is that um, by making it private, it allows us to go really deep, which creates an insight engine. I believe having an insight engine is one of the most important things in business today, especially given chat GPT and things. We need ways to develop new insights that AI is not going to get for us. And so by being able to go in and help a ton of people, um, it also give, allows me to get back uh, insights, making it paid, non also facilitates allowing me to make it non-recorded, right? The I love helping all of you, and, but part of the reason we do this, it creates a podcast episode, right? If we make it if we make it private, try and go deep in topics, then I'm not going to be able to put that as a podcast. So having it be paid becomes like a way for me to like justify the time doing it, so to speak. Companies already do this in a different way. So um, companies will take active pipeline or current customers that they're trying to expand, and they will host private events. It might be a dinner, it might be a time at Top Golf or something like that. So it's different than like exactly what I'm doing, but they kind of already do it right now where they're trying to work with people that already creating events and curating things for people that already pay them money. But my, I don't think that the strategy that I've taken and why I've chosen this is necessarily appropriate to every other company out there. I actually think that you shouldn't translate this part of the strategy in most business situations. So it's more specific to what I'm working on I'll be sharing a lot more about it like in the coming months. But uh, as the strategy begins to unfold and people understand what we're doing, it would become a lot more clear why we made this move. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Any follow-up? Any uh, a particular reason that you asked? Are you like in events or thinking about it for your company? Or Well, it was uh, partly because uh, I've just been listening to the live event, even going back to when it was on Tuesday nights yeah. at like six or seven. Um, but then it, the more I thought about it, I was just, well, you seem very intentional about everything that you do. And so this being the change that it was, I was just curious to learn more about why now or what led to that change. Yeah. And even, even so, like, there's also like a personal element to it too. What I've noticed the past, like three to four weeks of doing this is that when someone like you comes on and we're talking for 15 minutes and we're really solving a business problem, it's when I get the most satisfaction out of it. And it's when all the other people in the call get the most help from it. And so what I'm trying to do is create the conditions by having it not be recorded, having it be private, having people that have been paid so they're dedicated and they're going to show up to create the conditions to have that happen every single week. Um, so it's like pretty specific and it's, there's part personal, right? I get a lot of fulfillment with helping people. I, I answer like sort of general questions all the time. Um, so people will still be able to get all the same value on the podcast or things like that, because a lot of the question, the general questions come up a lot. Um, so yeah, that's like, if I shoot you straight, that's a lot of the drivers. It, it is intentional. Um, but I wouldn't overthink it or how it applies to you got it thanks chris thanks for coming on great question awesome and prime example here's a really great very thorough question but because this is live there are a lot of people here and it will be posted on the feed it has to be asked anonymously so let me use that as a good segue to transition to this this person says i just joined a double digit growing b2b company as a director of performance marketing they are purely 
this person is purely acquisition focused, responsible for paid channels, SEO, and website CRO. They have historically been focusing on MQL to feed the SDRs and have been very much lead gen focused, the full game, gated content equals an MQL, all the things. But they are turning around and do value marketing source pipe and close one. They are open to change. Uh, I have a huge impact. I can potentially have a huge impact outside of my primary responsibilities. Most of the paid budget has been on paid search, very capture focused so far with relative success because there is there is ripped demand out there. Ripped. Right. Ripe. Man, okay. Um, I want to show quick gains and build trust, low-hanging fruit, while working on longer-term projects. What are three areas that you'd focus on if you were in my shoes? P.S. I need to maintain a healthy level of lead volume, MQLs as they define it, coming in for the short term while showing pipe and close one impact at the same time. Okay, let's do it. There's what I would I would do. Um, and when I say what I would do, I'm not necessarily recommending it to you because it might result in you getting fired, but I'll tell you what I would do. And then I'll tell you what you probably should do given the constraints that you're working with. What I would do is I would take all the different performance marketing lead sources that we have, and I would, I would make a chart with it of how much we spend on it, how much stage three pipeline we get from it. And how much close one revenue we get from it and make some calculations on win rates and productivity and sales velocity and things like that. And I would stack that up to probably the sales leader today. I would probably go to the, not the CEO, not the head of marketing. I'd go to the sales leader and say, hey, sales leader, here's where we're deploying a lot of the marketing budget. Here's the results in pipeline. What do you see? Here's what I see. I see that we spend all this money on paid search. We spent $600,000 over the past year, which is 50K a month. And we are getting $13,000 in revenue from each 50,000 in spend. If we took this and redeployed it, like maybe there's a way that we can still get the 13,000, but only spend $13,000 a month for a one-to-one advertising payback. And then we can go and think about redeploying this money on different programs. So I would have a, I would run the analysis of the data. I would come together with recommendations and I would present them to the sales leader and align it against, here's how we're going to help you grow and hit your team's goals. And here's the insights. Sales leaders respect that because marketers usually don't come with that level of business acumen and business insight. But there's challenges in that approach based like you basically are showing people that the MQL strategy is flawed. Some people might not, some people that are very attached to the MQL metrics, it's in their early indicators and it's been the same way for the past 12 years. They just have it in their board dashboard and the board pushes for it and all this shit. Like you might rub some people the wrong way that are very MQL focused. So that's, that's what I would do in your situation. I would make some of these changes. Like I would make some of these changes on potentially on the fly. You're a director of a person. You have some level of authority and autonomy. Make sure that you maintain a certain level of MQLs. I would also start to show, um, the, the, uh, like show pipeline alongside MQLs probably, you know, stage one, stage two, whatever your company decides and try and get people to see that MQLs are staying the same or slightly declining and pipeline is growing because we're focused on the places where the right pipeline is. You can reference some of the data that we have. We have published plenty of data in the vault. I think it's available for, I think it's available for on the free one 
we can go in and see some of the statistics that we see with the core conclusion, not all MQLs are created equal. Executives should recognize this. And most companies get like 90% of the revenue from like five to 10% of the quote unquote leads. And so the other, it's like the 80-20 rule, but even more dramatic, like 80% 80 of the spend drives no results. So, um, and when you're running performance marketing, it's, it's very easy to see what, what's the 80% that's driving no results. Um, so I think the, if you're, have you been doing this for a while, the data should tell the full story and, you know, occasionally you might find, Hey, actually like some of this stuff is working pretty well for our business. We have a great offer. We have a great product. We're leading our category. We can run a lot. We can run some of this performance marketing and get decent returns. Um, so I think the data analysis is the key thing. And then there's probably tweaks that you can make inside of paid search, inside of website CRO, inside of some of those things to move the ball forward without like breaking the system. The thing you don't want to do is go from generating 5,000 MQLs a month to zero without the, or to 100 without the company being prepared for it because there's a lot of downstream implications to shutting off that faucet without a plan. Cool. They said makes total sense. Thank you for the thorough response. Let's end on maybe something that's more philosophical. We've gotten a lot of Let's questions about current climate, marketing, demand gen, given um, you know the economy and everything that's still happening. What are your thoughts or POV around continuing continuing to invest in marketing during this like quote unquote recession or economic climate? Um, should folks continue? How should they approach it? What levers should they consider while making their decisions, et cetera? Lots of questions around just like your outlook on the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, the the boom times of mid-2020 to early 2022 pumped like what was going on in the market. Everyone was flush with cash. Everyone was buying stuff. It wasn't because the marketing that you were doing was so spectacular. Oftentimes, there was a lot of companies that wasted $600,000 on paid search, but got enough revenue to justify it in CAC because everyone in, the, in, their, in their team were buying a virtual event platform, right? So then they're like, oh, our big spend on you know, virtual event software on Google search at $100,000 a month is really driving the impact here. It hid, and I've been saying, I literally, if you, I want to, maybe someone can do this, go back and find a video where I said this from like three years ago the market dynamics hid the fact that the marketing sucked and there was tons of money being wasted because people were buying stuff. So it gave the facade that this marketing is working because we ha are driving enough revenue when in reality, just the market was buying a bunch of stuff. And then when the bottom falls out and people stop buying stuff, then everything gets challenged. What and what's happening right now, people are buying way less stuff. Pipeline for companies could be down somewhere between 25 and 80%. Stock values are declining. Sales cycles are getting longer. Win rates are getting lower. Late stage pipeline deals are falling apart for like restructures and budget cuts and things like that. Just the environment is different. So what do companies have to do to adjust? They need to lower their go-to-market costs to a level where the customer acquisition cost is acceptable to the board, the investors, or the other owners of the business. And so what's going to happen there is most likely sales and marketing costs are going to go down. And some companies, they might just cut marketing because marketing is a variable expense and they don't want to lay off four salespeople. So just rather just cut $600,000 in program spend for marketing than lay off four salespeople. But in reality, companies should be 
decreasing budgets at some level of a consistent rate, it's actually an opportunity because it allows companies to rebalance their sales and marketing expenditures during this time. But the like the idea that during this time when way less people are buying that your marketing budget's not going to go down, I think is is semi ridiculous. Like you're, you're as a business owner, the marketing budget should be going down when instead of getting 30 customers a month, now you're only getting seven. So the costs that you spend on sales and marketing get amplified and get spread across only seven customers instead of 30 customers, which is like three to four X, three to four X your customer acquisition costs just by having getting less customers at the same expenditure. So budgets are going to go down. And then the, the second part of the question is what are some things that we could do? Yeah. Yeah. What are some things we can do? What are some levers that you would consider in your approach to understanding if you should further invest in marketing, stay steady investing in marketing, resource allocation mix, et cetera? The time to increase investment in marketing is when you have a hand and you know it's the best hand. You know it's going to work. Um, it takes So companies have different tolerance levels of recognizing when to put the foot on the gas. If you're running paid search, you're spending $10,000 and you can see that the people that are searching this generic keyword is driving $25,000 in revenue and you're getting $2.5 in revenue for every dollar you spend on ads. And you, and you see that you only have 70% impression share and you could get 95 by just bidding more, spending more money, probably at least go out and test that and try it. Um, if you're like me in 2019, where I was like, damn, LinkedIn is really working for my business. I only have one employee, but I'm going to hire a video editor, which is going to like trip. It's going to majorly increase my expenses as a small business owner, because I know that I have the best hand on LinkedIn and I know that it's going to work and I see it and I'm going to move on it way faster than other people do. So my tolerance level was different there. I just, I knew to put my foot on the gas there and invest in other sales and marketing and operational costs to make LinkedIn work better. Cause I knew that I had quote unquote, the best hand. Um, if you as a company don't feel like you have the best hand and you know, what's working and you know that you can push it, then there's no reason to increase investment. Um, so this is like, this is a business situation as a marketer, you, you are, you have some budget, you're doing things, you need to be able to be able to measure it, isolate the impact, be able to communicate that to executives and put together a business case to executives that says, Hey, we spent 250 K on this last year. This was the return. We're going to increase it to a million dollars next year. This will be the return. Here's how we know that it's going to work. Here's how the money's going to be spent. Here's what we're going to do. Go and make that proposal and see how often money flows back to you when you come with a good business case about what, how you're going to grow the company. Um, so I think though, like thinking at a business level, not just a marketing level is the way to get increased investment. Um, some like tactical things that you could do. I think that leaning into customer stories right now is the best thing that you can do. I, I truly believe that, that, that your customers communicating the value you provide to prospective customers and active in pipeline is like one of the most impactful things that you can do. It's going to stimulate dark social. So when, you know, a prospective customer sees this CMO, that's your customer, you better believe that they're going to send that CMO a DM and say, Hey, I saw that video of you about with that company. Are they really the real deal? And then you get the opportunity for one of your happy customers to tell a prospective customer, yeah, they're the real deal. I'm really happy with them. You should use them. Um, so I think customer stories is a super low cost way to like, you don't have, you don't need a lot of budget to do this. You just need some effort and some video editing and some minor things, putting that stuff together would be a huge, uh, a huge benefit right now. 
Um, I think uh, spending more time getting clear on what the offer is, this is more of a strategic element, but getting a lot more clear on what the offer is. How, how are we creating an irresistible offer when people get to our website that it's stupid to say no? Um, how do you make that? There's like some people have two week free trials. Some people have, you know, 60 day money back guarantee. Some people have, you know, you can get out of the contract within 60 days or a free pilot or validation or all the other things that you can come up with. How do you make it so that the traffic that you already get on the website has more of a compelling reason to engage and continue the process? I think those are two things I haven't talked much about. I'm not going to go back and tell you you should start a podcast. I say that I recommend that often and everyone knows that. So those are two like less talked about tactics that I would try. Cool. What's that? Do you want to end on time? Yeah, let's or... do it. I'll, I'll, okay. uh, yeah, I'll just close out real quick and then we can get, get to it. Everybody, thanks for being here. It's been awesome. I don't know how many episodes we did of this one. We did more than 100 at Demand Gen Live. We're probably coming up on like 25 for Revenue Vitals. I'm not sure. Um, but really appreciate you all being a part of this. We'll continue the event and everyone will see me around. So uh, no, and a lot of people that are in here are actually Vault subscribers. So we'll continue there. I want to say thank you to Kaylee. Kaylee's been the best co-host out there. She's been doing an awesome job. I love all the tidbits that she drops in and also keeping this whole thing together. Um, so thanks to Kaylee, shout out. And um, there was a lot of people that showed up like almost every week. And so I want to say thank you to all of you for being here, for investing in yourself. I hope that there was a lot of... Uh, I hope that there was a lot of value provided and like the number one thing that I'm trying out of like the content that I produce at this point is like trying to trying to get the thank you note that I get like a couple times a week or sometimes I get floods of them where people say like, hey, I, I found you a year ago. I started doing some of the stuff and I got promoted. I started my company. I learned a lot more. I got off the MQL hamster wheel. Whatever your success story is, it's really like fuels me to keep going. So if you've had successes, I'd love if you just drop me a little LinkedIn DM and let me know what what happened to you. So yeah, it's just a good feedback loop for me to figure out where are the places where I'm bringing the most impact and the fuel for me to keep going. So um, appreciate you all being here. Thanks again. Hope you have a great rest of your week. And we'll see you again soon. Bye, everyone.